previously on Alibi. I was shot in 1990 by the cops and I landed in a wheelchair. Not to say that I want anything out of it or what, just to expose to say that no, these people, they were actually lying and it can actually be proven that they were, they were lying because, you know, these people, they will go to the extremes. We had to put one of us away and that's the reason why I think they, if you knew the, the, the cops of those days, people that goes to prison and were hated criminals. Yeah. I became one of the worst. I'm Freddie Mabitella, and welcome to Alibi. You're listening to episode three. And if you've missed out on the previous episodes, we're investigating a case of Anthony DeFries, who's been in jail for 17 whole years. We are trying to find out if Anthony is innocent or guilty. In this episode, the next step is to go to the murder scene. Now, this is where two security guards were murdered and thousands of rands went missing. We're going to look at what it looks like today. We found out last week that Anthony was meant to be, according to the state, a driver of a dark blue BMW. We want to find out this car's involvement in the murders and if Anthony was indeed the driver of this dark blue BMW. The journalist investigating Anthony's case is Paul McNally. He's here to take us through the murder scene. Hi, Paul. Hi, Freddie. Before we go to the murder scene, we have an issue here, am I right? We have a problem with Anthony. Basically, Anthony told me that his brother Selwyn was political, as in that he was fighting for freedom during apartheid. And he said that the reason why he got in trouble with the police was for this, for being political. When I told Selwyn this... He told me this was not the reason. In fact, he laughed in my face. <laughs> I wasn't so impolitical. I was a bank robber. He shot a guy at a high school fundraising event for chopping him in the head with a panga. He then went on the run and in a shootout with the cops became paralysed. Now he's in a wheelchair. So Selwyn's past as a bank robber is one revelation. But one that's more important is that Anthony lied to us, and this is a big problem. One of my colleagues at WIT's Justice Project, Carolyn Raffaele, agrees with me. Justice Project is a group of journalists who look at issues like wrongful convictions and prisoners' rights. Yeah, anyway, um, you can start again. <laughs> we sit in the Justice Project offices in Bramfontein, Johannesburg, and discuss what this lie from Anthony means for the story. Sometimes liars don't think of the consequences. And also, I think the thing about liars is they... Carolyn is a celebrated, award-winning journalist. She deals with stories where the protagonists are often either in prison or have been recently released. Okay, so if this had happened to you and you discovered this lie, would you have dropped him as a subject? I would have had a big, fat question mark in my head and my antennae would have been... Out. And I think that people who tell lies, it's a consistent pattern because you have, to, you have to live with yourself. And I think if you tell lies, you're not going to just lie in one area. I think he told you a bit of a whopper. You know, he, he says that his brother is very political. He doesn't go into the fact that his brother is a bank robber and that he shot this guy. Because he's manipulating you. Um, 
I think. He could be manipulating you because in the relationship that you have, you know, you want something from him. You want a story from him. Yeah. And he's using you as well. So it's kind of a situation of the one hand washes the other. Well, what is he using me for? Because if you're going to use his story, it might have unexpected benefits for him or there might be spin-offs in some way. But he has to be very careful of what he tells you and how much he discloses to you and the manner in which he discloses it to you because uh, he's manipulating you in, in, in some way. As for the relationship I have with Anthony, I have to admit, I want him to open up, feel comfortable, because it is in these confessions that the juice of the story lies. You know, you need to establish a relationship of trust with your subject, yeah. the journalist does, and then it's kind of, your relationship is contaminated in a way, or confounded, because you're going to be structuring your questions in a particular way to get an answer which maybe you know would constitute a good sound bite yeah. for your program. But he's equally aware that he needs to be careful and think about what he tells you. Yeah. If he tells you stuff about his brother, that he's a bank robber, it doesn't look so good. But if he's a politico, it kind of makes certain things... Maybe more acceptable if you said it was, you know, it was during the struggle years. Maybe you'd rationalise it differently. Even if we give Anthony the benefit of the doubt, this process going forward can only work if he's honest with us. He's asked us to trust him and in turn, he's betrayed that trust. I confront him about it over the phone. I didn't think it was necessary to, to mention it, but I didn't think it was necessary. Because um, he was quite surprised when I said that you'd said he was political. And he was quite, he told me the stories of his bank robberies and, and those sorts of things. Yeah. You see, when he was involved in those things, it was because he was, I didn't think that no, it was a good thing or as, as such. What he did, it was his things because why, for my side, I tried to improve myself with education, etc. I mean, Carolyn's right. This lie has infected our relationship. Anthony has given me a pathetic answer to why he lied to me. But there's one last comment that Carolyn says to me, which stops me from leaving Anthony's case entirely. A lawyer told me also a few weeks ago that if somebody consistently maintains their innocence over a very extended period. And this guy's been behind bars for 17 years. He said, usually in his experience, that means that they often are not guilty. Anthony is preparing the papers necessary for his parole. To have it granted, he needs to admit guilt. And the truth is, Anthony is struggling with this. He still insists that he's innocent. And if he believes so strongly in his own innocence to the extent that he's willing to stay in prison, because he has to admit that he's guilty to get parole, that's the same for everyone, then that means something. You see, that's why I told you in my case it's a difficult situation because, you see here, if you say that no, you didn't do anything, for them it is like you are denying, uh, you're not taking responsibility. 
Because yeah. that is what I did in the past, and that is why I'm still here. Okay, so there's a there's a sense because you're saying you didn't do it, so there is no victim in your case, and they're taking that as you're not taking responsibility. Yeah, once you say that no, that you you uh, you say that you didn't do anything, then they say that you don't take responsibility, and hence you are not ready, you are not rehabilitated, oh. because. When you are in correctional services, they don't believe that the courts do make mistakes. This paradox is so frustrating. If Anthony tells the authorities that he did nothing, so he says that he's innocent, then he can't get parole. And he's served way more at this point than the minimum time necessary. Anthony did tell us a lie about Selwyn, okay? Not a huge one, but he was certainly trying to win our favour. And we should not forget this. Now... Knowing Anthony and having a bit of distrust at this moment, the next thing to do is to return to the issue of the BMW. The BMW is a really important part of the story. Last week, we discovered that at trial, a dark blue BMW sedan was connected to the robbery and that Anthony was convicted as the driver of this car. Now, how does that make you feel about Anthony? Okay, Yeah, it is a shock to see a picture of the BMW wrecked and the insides covered in blood. And to know that somehow this is connected with Anthony, at least according to the state. But we have to accept that Anthony has his story and the state has theirs, right? Otherwise, he wouldn't be in jail at all. And you say there's a photo of Anthony covered in blood. It is A crazy photo, and it is harder to accept than the one of the BMW. He is bright red with blood. (laughs) And Anthony's version is that the blood was from him being mugged with a bottle and assaulted by the police. And the state says that he was injured and thus got covered in blood while they were chasing him as the driver of the BMW. And in the paperwork, there's a photo with what looks like blood all over the driver's side of the BMW. Yes, more blood. A photo of Anthony covered in blood and a photo of the BMW covered in blood. But how the car was involved in the robbery and the truth behind Anthony's injuries, we still don't know. So the fact that there is blood in both places does not necessarily mean they are linked. So what's the next thing we're about to do now? Marvin and I are heading down to the checkers in Vrenichung where the two murders took place. Wow, and the checkers still exist. Can, can I tell you, I thought it wouldn't, wouldn't exist. <laughs> Marvin is the intern at Justice Project. You'll remember him from the first episode with the letters. So this is the road where they found I don't the know. bullets. I don't know which one it is. It is this one, actually. Because the checker sign is still there. Oh! Vrenichung is about an hour outside of Johannesburg. The Checkers sells groceries and is the main attraction in a small mall full of families doing their weekly shops. There are a few banks and a wimpy fast food restaurant tacked on the side. We're going to visit that wimpy in a later episode. Well, I do think it's more diverse than what it was in 1994. That's true. 21 years ago, Vrenichung would have been a predominantly white town. Both the security guards murdered were white. Now, looking around, the area is pretty mixed. 
According to the court records and statements by the police, on the 28th of March 1994, at 9am, the Fidelity Guards arrived, just like any other morning. At 10 past 9, a white Mazda Baki drives directly towards the Fidelity van that's parked right outside the front entrance of the checkers. Good grief. So they must have pulled up right here. Yeah. It happened. They pulled up there. And they were about to go into... into get the money. The Baki traps the Fidelity van. It boxes it in. So there is no way of escape for the security guards. There was a VHS store right there where the robbery took place. (laughs) That shows how long ago this was. But it's no more. It has actually been replaced with a fish and chip shop now. But Dolph, the man who owned the video store in the 90s, recalls how the Fidelity vans would park. I used to drive up that little ramp there and then park right in front of the door at Checkers entrance. You know, which was actually not the correct thing to do. But mm-hmm. I did it out of habit because I didn't park, park in the, you know, so they were enclosing themselves for the ambush. So on that day, a black man gets out of the backy. I mention his race because Anthony is coloured and no one identified anyone of Anthony's race being associated with the crime at the checkers on this day. No one. Two people stay seated in the backy while the black man gets out. The guards were standing right in front of Dolph's video store, Video Check. Dolph was friends with the guy who was working behind the counter at the video store on the day of the robbery. That guy told me that he, he just opened, went into the shop. Those days, the video shop opened at nine. Put the lights on, and the next moment, he just heard the shots. Bullets rocketed towards the security guards, and a few even burst into the video store. So he, he just basically walked in, put the lights on, computers on, and then he heard the shots, and he ducked down behind the counter. So then the person who was working there, they were lucky, right? The person who was working... Yeah, he, he, that guy told me he was ducking behind the counter. And he heard the shots going off. Marvin and I are walking around the Checkers parking lot with a full range of photos of the crime scene. We're looking at one and comparing it to what we're seeing in front of us. They were taken on the day of the murders and during the police investigation. We have photos of the Fidelity vans, the Baki, the bloody corpses, the Checkers itself, and diagrams of where bullet shells were found. These are shown on the photos as little red beacons. One of the photos is of the video store, and there's a poster of Sylvester Stallone's dodgy mid-90s movie Cliffhanger in the window. Every month you get new posters for uh, all the movies that's coming that month, but those are also still in the walls there as they shot with an AK, or I don't know what they shot with. The holes from the AK-47 bullets were there for years, and Dolph, each month, carefully covered the holes with posters of that month's new releases. You could see, still see the holes. Okay, now, but we just, we just put posters over. There was another guy who used to, t- used to take out movies with us. He was one of the security guys that was ill that morning, and he phoned me and he said, no, he's going to going to go to work that day. Dolph is remembering back to a security guard who rented movies with them. He, luckily, called in sick on the day of the murders. And they actually replaced him with somebody else and that guy got shot dead. Jeez. So that guy had a, a, a 
lucky archangel or something looking out for him that day. Marvin and I move among the shoppers, and suddenly I realize, according to the photo in my hand, that we're standing exactly where one of the security guards fell to the ground, dead. So he was shot right here where we're standing? Yeah, right where we're actually standing here. Good grief. I mean, and the bu- are these all bullets? Yeah, that's all bullets. So the gunman was actually standing here and shooting. About 12 feet away from where the guy was shot. Cashing transit is a relatively new crime type during about the, the mid-90s. This is Johan Berger. He's a senior researcher at the Institute of Security Studies in Pretoria. He's in the Governance, Crime and Justice Division. And he is the man to call about the history of cash-in-transit heists in South Africa. It was fairly new. Um, and then after 94, uh, 95, that period, it started increasing. So, so before that, it was fairly uh, unknown in, in South Africa. We did not have this uh, high uh, number of uh, cash and plants uh, robberies that we have. And, and of course, firearms were not as prevalent then as, as it is today. And without submachine guns and other uh, weaponry, it would be difficult to carry out these cash and transit uh, robberies. They stole in 1994 130,000 rand in cash from the guards. In today's money, that is about half a million rand. So South Africa had these controls during the 80s that were slowly relaxed during the early 90s. And this allowed a cash-in-transit heist to go from near impossible to feasible in a relatively quick few years. So in 1994, the public, the police, the courts, they were all being shaken by this crime's sudden appearance. So you had a lot more firearms, you had a lot more trained people who found themselves without a job. You had, uh, uh, you know, uh, movement control was stopped, uh, so people were able to move around freely. So you just created conditions uh, within a very short space of time that were all, uh, in a way, adding to the attractiveness of this type of crime. Keep in mind that the murders that Anthony was convicted of happened just a few short weeks before South Africa's first democratic election. It was a relatively lawless period. The old authority was dying, and the new one was yet to be put in place. The police were demoralised, frankly. And for Anthony, this means that they would have been under huge strain to make a conviction stick. Remember until the very late 1980s, uh, there was still armed conflict. There was an official uh, war situation, both inside and outside of the country. We had all of these. Uh, uh, on the one hand, you had these strict uh, apartheid laws in place that restricted movement, that limited access to firearm licenses. Uh, and, 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 of course, you had huge presence of the armed forces throughout the country. So, yes, I would say long before the democratic change in, in or change to democracy in 1994, yeah. we saw, uh, you know, a relaxing of all of these tight state controls mm. that just opened up the space for criminals. And, of course, they exploited uh, the situation.
A security guard stops me and Marvin. We have cameras and papers and dictaphones. He wants to know what we're up to. Yeah, but are you allowed? We have permission to do that. The security guard's name is JJ Twala. Have you seen something like this happen since then here? No? I think it was that time it was still a Chakras Chakras. It wasn't yet uh, uh, this thing. Chakras Hyper. Chakras Hyper. It was still Chakras because it was still painted yellow. You'll be glad to know that there has been a change at the checkers for where the guards can collect the money. And this minimizes the chance of them being ambushed. This is what Dolph was talking about earlier. These crimes were new in 1994, and people weren't ready for how violent and sophisticated the criminals could be. I think that's Yeah, when, uh, because now it's been changed. They are no longer collecting from front. They are collecting uh, from the back. Uh, you see, yes, they are not collecting okay. from here. Yeah. Okay. I show JJ the photos. He flicks through them casually, completely unperturbed by the gruesome shots of the bodies. The dead security guards in white underwear, lying there, dead. Just flicks right past them. But he does stop on a photo of one of the old Fidelity vans. This is still the old one. They were still using taxis. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's an old, old It's in 1994. Yeah, so. yeah, it's an old one. I remember this system of them. Yes. Yeah. It's a very old one. It's a very old one. Yeah. They're using a small truck now. You will have noticed that Marvin and I still have not found any trace of Anthony being at this scene. There is also no sign of the BMW that he was meant to have been driving. Let's take a witness's testimony from the day. Monet Lamont was 21 years old in 1994 when the murders happened. He lived close to the checkers and he was visiting the shops on that morning. Monet said in a written statement, which we have on file, that he heard gunfire on that morning and so he fell to the floor. After two rounds of shots, so the shootout with the two security guards has now happened. Monet saw a black man, so not Anthony, jump into a baki with an AK-47. This is when he was retreating. Monet said the guy waved the gun in his direction before the baki drove off. Monet, after the baki had left, went up to one of the security guards lying on the ground. He felt for a pulse, but there was none. A pharmacist came and checked the second guard. He was also dead. Monet went to get a sheet from inside and covered the body of the security guard. As traumatic as this story is, it should be noted that nothing Monet saw as a key witness linked the crime to Anthony. And so far, there is no sign of the BMW. I call Anthony in Boxburg Correctional Centre and ask him what the judge said exactly about this BMW? No, he said that this vehicle was used as a, as a supporting vehicle, like a backup vehicle. And he said that he can't even put that vehicle, the BMW, the judge concluded that BMW was never even on the scene. So the judge found Anthony guilty, but not necessarily at the scene of the murders. He did link him to the BMW, but the BMW only joins the story after the murders took place. In court, the judge said that he cannot prove that I was on the scene of crime, but he found me guilty for armed robbery. He found me guilty for murder, two murders. He found me 
there was five charges of, of firearms that they said they found in one of the cars or I don't know where. He found me guilty on the possession of firearms, ammunition, everything. How someone can even be convicted when they aren't found at the scene of the crime, we are definitely going to get into in a later episode. And we're going to try and find out who those other people were in the BMW. If Anthony was meant to be the driver, he certainly wasn't alone in that car. And no one else was convicted. What we do know is this BMW was in a high-speed chase with the cops. There were people leaning out of the passenger window of the BMW and shooting back at the cops. It was crazy. I must be honest, this episode has been full of action and violence, even more than the previous episode. Well, I started this episode hating Anthony, really, because of the lies he told us, but I do feel that we resolved that to some extent. We've parked it, not forgotten it. Look, I was about to like Anthony and I was <laughs> falling for him in episode one. It was very romantic. I was like, oh, Anthony, such a good guy until we found out that he had lied to us. And this is not a small lie. And to be honest, I think he is used to your type of reaction when people hear about his brother. They hear about his family and they leap to this conclusion that he is also part of this world. And he didn't want us to do that. We've spoken largely of the matter of the BMW. Basically, even if he was this driver, he was not at the murder scene. And I'm amazed that he has been found guilty of all these crimes. We meticulously went through the murder scene and he was nowhere to be seen. I'm starting to feel sorry for Anthony. No matter what happened in that BMW, if he was in it or not, the horrible violence, the guards with their faces blown off, it doesn't look like he was there. So what are we investigating in the next episode? I'm going to leave the Checkers Shopping Centre with Marvin and we are going to go out on the road. We're going to track this high-speed car chase which happened between the BMW and the cops and we're hopefully going to find out exactly who was driving that BMW. And all of this is in the next episode of Alibi. You've been listening to Alibi. This is the show that will investigate a single criminal case over eight weeks. I'm Freddie Mabitella, and Alibi is investigated, produced, and written by Paul McNally. It is brought to you by the Vitz Justice Project, Vitz Radio Academy, and is part of the Citizen Justice Network. Editorial oversight was given by Franz Kruger and Nusheen Afani. Extra scripting and production by Elna Schutz. Mixed by Kutrano Serrame. Additional editorial help by Gavin Haynes, Tom McNally, and Kyla Hemmonson. We are based in Johannesburg, South Africa. You can find our podcast on alibi.org.za or on iTunes. Join us next week for episode four of Alibi the show that will investigate a single criminal case over eight weeks. Next time on Alibi. You see there's blood over here all over. It's nice to eat a wimpy breakfast and look at the, the blood all over the car. And Kriyam said to Maren, look here who we found, because he's the one they knew me from before. A couple of hundred meters behind us is the checkers, and right in front of us is towards where they found the bucky. Do you remember what I told you? The original docker yeah, oh. got lost. Yeah. And they took a skeleton docker.